ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, where's the sweet spot with sitting versus standing? Yeah, get off your bottom. Misleading advertising of fertility tests, advice for women about the best surgery for uterine prolapse and indirectly incontinence. Our first story, though, is about the challenge of regulating our food supply in the face of the globalised food industry. Mexico has been a world leader in trying to get people to change unhealthy eating behaviours, paying people to be healthy, sugar taxation, and now assertive labelling of processed foods like breakfast cereals with large octagonal warnings about excess calories, sugar and fat if the unhealthy ingredients exceed globally agreed thresholds. It's called front-of-package nutrition labelling, and the labels are big relative to the size of the box. But the food industry... Big food, as it's known, is fighting back aggressively in the Mexican courts. One person who's been watching this closely is Dr. Eric Crosby, a public health researcher at the University of Nevada. If any business is selling a product and they are having to be regulated, and if it's going to mean less people purchasing their products, and there's some early studies that are showing this, parents that are buying some of these products for their children, and they hesitate and they go pick a different product, you can imagine that any business is going to be up in arms. But with these big food and beverage companies, you know, the big transnational corporations like Kellogg's and Nestle and Coca-Cola, Pepsi and so forth, they are worried about losing profits from their products and not just in Mexico, but a diffusion of these policies spreading throughout the world. What's the legal basis for these attacks? A lot of these companies are arguing that this is, on one part, a restriction of their trademarks. And so if you're Nestle and you're now having to put this big warning on your product, that's going to diminish the brand value of your product. And then internationally, they are complaining in various trade forums like the World Trade Organization that has certain bodies that are designed to protect businesses when they sell their products internationally. So it's a similar set of arguments to the tobacco industry with plain packaging. Yes, especially in Australia with the plain package case with tobacco, the companies had argued that this was a restricted trademarks and that they should be able to sell that trademark. But what the court in Australia ruled, similarly in the international courts, is that the reason that this is not a violation of the trademark is because, for example, if a tobacco company went to go sell that product and you as a third party were to take that product and then resell it and make profits off of it, the tobacco companies could sue that individual or that company for expropriation. The reason that they lost in court is because the government of Australia was restricting their trademarks, but they weren't going around and turning around and selling Marlboro cigarettes. And so the government of Australia and international courts said, this is not a violation of your trademarks because there's not profit being made. It's just saying we want to restrict you from using it because you're killing a bunch of people. It's often been said that big food acts just like big tobacco, and they've learnt at the feet of uh, the tobacco industry, and sometimes there's cross-ownership of big food companies and tobacco companies. How are these cases faring in the Mexican courts at the moment? Just one quick point on that, because I think it's important for your listeners to note, is that we actually have a lot of previous secret industry documents that show these connections between tobacco and food companies. And a lot of the old tobacco execs now work in food 
And we also have to remember that a lot of these tobacco companies used to own food brands. So Philip Morris International, which is the owner of Marlboro Cigarettes, they also owned Kraft Foods in the 80s and 90s. R.J. Reynolds, which is another big tobacco company, owed Nabisco. And so us as researchers, we can go and look at these documents. They've known for decades that these legal arguments are not going to work. But if they can convince the public to be threatened and scared and then really threaten governments with legal fees and financial obstacles, they can stop that diffusion from happening. But to answer your question, where the court cases are now in Mexico, a lot of them are still pending. So in Mexico, a lot of the companies have filed what are called amparos or what are called injunctions where they actually are basically trying to delay a lot of these policies from going into effect. So they're tying them up in courts and they're arguing all of these points. And it's multiple companies doing it. And so I believe there's over 100 injunctions that have been filed against the Mexican government. And again, this is also another industry strategy to tie up the courts, to delay the process and to really make the policy ineffective. Given the history of tobacco packaging, they may well not win, but as you say, they've delayed. And is there any evidence of, which is what the industry is terrified of, of cross-border spread? Absolutely, yeah. So we have industry documents. And if you go to the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, they have a website that has industry documents. And before it used to just contain tobacco industry documents, but now there are food industry documents, chemical industry, fossil fuel, and food industry, and a bunch of others. And what these documents contain is they contain internal memos, private emails, correspondence between industry executives privately, their kind of internal communications, and then what they're projecting to do publicly. Now, for us as researchers, we're actually reading word for word what these industries are doing. And there are documents that show that the industry is terrified of diffusion. There's this great quote from Hugh Kaufman, who was the former vice president of Philip Morris back in the 1980s, who said, a sneeze in one country today causes international pneumonia tomorrow. And then there was a recent document in 2016 of Coca-Cola that basically showed a graph where the thing that they were most worried of proliferating was sugar-sweetened beverage taxes or soda taxes. And if you look at how the industry reacts, that's a good test. So in fact, we call this a scream test. If you get a scream, yeah, you know you've hit the mark. Yes. The louder the industry is screaming, the more you're, you're on to something. And has there been diffusion of these regulations? Absolutely. Diffusion is a great way to kind of spread these policies. So this started in Chile, where they adopted similar octagon warnings. But you see other countries, Uruguay, Argentina, Colombia, in Latin America that have followed suit, but now Mexico, and they're starting to spread. And then if you look around the world, like especially in Southeast Asia, countries like the Philippines and others are also starting to adopt very similar policies. The one link, what I mentioned about the industry documents, because it's such a valuable resource and tool. If you go back, the tobacco companies have been caught for racketeering back in the 1990s. They had lied to the American public about the addictive nature of nicotine. And once those whistleblowers came forward and sent that information, that information was then put into these digital archives. And since then, there's been a bunch of court cases and other whistleblowers that have continued to put new documents. And so now researchers or journalists can go into this archive website 
and find internal documents about the activities of these industries. It's a very powerful weapon when you're fighting a very strong industry that has all these resources that, again, you're not speculating, you're reading word for word their intentions, their actions. Eric, thank you very much for joining us on The Health Report. And we'll have a link to that website, which has those industry documents on it. And if there are any potential whistleblowers listening to this conversation, you can post those to that website. Thank you very much for being on. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Dr. Eric Crosby, who's a public health researcher at the University of Nevada. Now, Norman, I need to ask you, are you sitting down? What, are you about to shock me or something like this? No, I'm trying to figure out your risk of dying from any cause. Oh, so this is sitting being the new smoking. Yes, indeed. We've talked about it uh, on the Health Report a lot before, the idea that sitting is bad for you. And it's something I have been thinking about ahead of our next interview, because in general, I am a desk sitter when I'm at work, but I went to experiment with standing earlier today and suddenly remembered why. (laughs) I'm calling this new segment Adventures in Ergonomics. This is me winding up my desk to standing height, by the way. Well, I'm definitely getting a workout. (laughs) It's not actually tall enough for me. I'm too tall for my standing workstation. I guess I'm just going to have to sit and die instead. Well, new research has been looking into this, not just the risk of sitting, which have already been pretty well described, but why it's bad and how much of a change is needed to make a difference. Senior author on a recent paper into this is David Dunstan from the Baker Institute and Deakin University. Hi, David. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Are you sitting or standing? I'm standing at my height adjustable desk as you Uh, wound your desk up. (laughs) (laughs) Good to hear. So we know that sitting increases our risk of early death. Can you tell us briefly what's happening in the body to cause this? Well, I think the important point is that it's uh, not all sitting, it's high amounts of sitting that lead to the increased risk of, you know, a number of um, conditions. And and why is that the case? Well, we, we started to narrow it down to some of the impacts that it has on the body, namely changes in our, our blood flow that occurs throughout the day. So when we're sitting, we've got to reduce blood flow. And that has um, you know cascading consequences in terms of being able to manage the the body's clearance of some of those um, you know um, the blood glucose levels, our blood insulin levels, blood fat levels um, throughout the day. So they're the major ones. But of course, the, the, it, what it does do when we sit for long periods of time, we're not using our muscles, and our muscles are essentially the body's engine for many, many of the uh, body's processes. So we need to be up and moving frequently throughout the day. Yeah, so we've talked before on the health report with yourself about the fact that exercise is good, uh, no doubt, but it's not enough to counteract if you're sitting for hours and hours at a time. So what is the intervention? Standing, according to the numbers in your paper, is, is good, but the effect size is pretty small. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important point that, um, you know, what, what are the solutions if, if sitting is bad for our um, health or well, what can we do about it? And I think it's a, it's a little bit of a, a, a good, better, best scenario, whereas, you know, good is, yes, getting up and, and, and standing. Better is if you move, but, of course, the best is if we move faster and, and that's when we're, you know, getting our heart rate up and what we call moderate intensity type activity. So it's a good, better, best sort of scenario. So one of the things that you're trying to do here is implement this as as an intervention. Obviously, people who are listening to the health report maybe have the choice to stand up and move more during their day, but at a population level, not everyone has the ability to do that. What kind of interventions are going to shift the needle, not just for individuals, but for healthcare costs nationally? 
Crucial to all this is um, the ability to identify who who is likely to be at risk for their daily behaviours of either physical inactivity and sitting for high amounts. And so what we're really um, trying to push this message is that um, it's so important that when we're asking about a person's risk level, you need to ask about their physical activity and also their sitting time as well. And the reason for this is um, the benefits that we get from doing physical activity can be sort of undone by the amount of time that we spend sitting. So it depends how how much we're sitting. And, of course, our risks associated with sitting are most pronounced in people who are not doing uh, um, much physical activity. So we really need to um, start to get a message across that we we have to look at both of these health risk behaviours of too little physical activity but also too much sitting. So you're sort of moving people, we know that moving people from the most sedentary category into sort of a less one is what delivers the biggest sort of health benefit. That's correct. I mean, get our greatest benefits from taking people who are doing nothing in terms of physical activity um, to doing something, but of course, reducing the time spent um, sitting. But I guess for a lot of people, um, it's a major challenge who are not doing any physical activity. It's a major challenge to even progress up to what is called the minimum uh, guidelines of 30 minutes of um, moderate brisk walking type activity um, uh, throughout the day. So hand in hand with um, trying to look at uh, identifying who's mostly uh, likely to be at risk, there's a new approach that we're really trying to push forward and what we call a staircase approach where we're taking people of virtually doing no physical activity, just let's start on the first step of try and reduce the amount of time you're spending sitting. Okay, and then once that, uh, yeah, that's been achieved, it can then start to move up the, the staircase of getting a bit more movement throughout the day. And I guess the, the, the whole goal there is to form a, um, a preparation base so that then can pro- um, progress to doing that more traditional type um, uh, activity like a brisk walk, et cetera, for long per- longer periods of time. So a mm. staircase approach to, to physical activity promotion. Excellent. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Professor David Dunstan is head of the Baker Deacon Department of Lifestyle and Diabetes and Deputy Director of the Baker Institute. And you're with The Health Report. Women are being misled by websites pushing fertility tests, according to research from the University of Sydney. The test being marketed is for the anti-malarian hormone, or AMH, which is produced by follicles in the ovary. Ovarian follicles are where eggs live until they're released during a menstrual cycle or ovarian stimulation during in vitro fertilisation. AMH testing indicates what's called the ovarian reserve, how many eggs a woman roughly has left relative to her age. IVF clinics use the AMH test to see what level of egg retrieval they might expect from ovarian stimulation. It's not designed, though, for general screening in the community. AMH levels do not tell a woman how fertile she is, nor is it reliable for predicting what age you might experience the menopause. Yet that's the sort of thing that these websites are touting. Dr. Rachel Thompson was one of the research team who surveyed these websites. Welcome to the Health Report, Rachel. Thanks very much for having me, Norman. So before we get to this present study, you quite recently looked at the proportion of women in Australia who have actually had or are having the AMH test. That's right. So earlier... um 
in the year, we published an, a paper looking at really trying to capture what's happening in, in uptake of the AMH test or this egg timer test. And the reason for that is that we actually don't have a lot of really reliable uh, public data on that. Um, so we did a, a survey of a, uh, of a representative sample of people in Australia, um, looked at just those women of reproductive age, so aged 18 to 55 years, and asked them whether they'd heard about the test, if they'd had the test, and if so, why, um, and where did they access that test? And I think our, our point of doing uh, that study right now is that we're actually seeing increasing advertising um, of this test and growth in access to the test, um, through particularly through these direct-to-consumer test websites. And what you find, I think, was about 7% of women have had it, which is quite a lot when you add it up. And they're mostly well-educated women, but they're, they're not there's not a huge awareness of why the, of the right reasons for having it. Let's look at the, um, this particular study. What did you find when you examined, I think it was about 27 websites? That's right. So we analysed the information on 27 websites from seven different countries around the world, um, looking at what it was they were informing people about the test and also the sort of language that those sites are using. Uh, what we found was that websites actually varied a great deal in terms of how much information they provided. Um, and many of the websites, as you pointed out, made misleading claims about that test. Um, in particular, what we noticed was that um, sites weren't completely transparent about the limitations of the test. Um, so we found that only a third, for example, disclosed that the test wasn't actually a reliable predictor of someone's ability to have a baby in the future. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the key here is that really, even if your ovarian reserve is lower for your age, the eggs you're producing are just as good as anyone else's eggs per menstrual cycle. You're not, this is not a sign of infertility. It just might mean You've got, to get a, you've got to get a hurry on to have your baby rather than waiting, waiting around. Well, yeah, so what the test really tells us is the quantity of a, of a woman's eggs that are left in very simple terms. It doesn't tell us anything about the quality of those eggs, um, nor how successful someone would be in conceiving in the future. Um, so for that reason, I think there are a couple of uh, consequences of that, um, that, those misleading claims. And that's either that women are having the test without knowing what it's, what it's able to actually um, provide to them in terms of information. And the risk there, I think, is that uh, women may be falsely reassured about their fertility or equally unnecessarily worried. Um, and the test just simply can't give us that information in the general population. Do you think it leads to unnecessary referrals to IVF clinics? I think that is certainly a potential risk. We haven't got the data on, on that yet, but that is certainly a very um, predictable risk, I think, of the kind of thing that we're talking about. Now, there are Australian websites offering this. Were they any better than the international ones? So there were three Australian websites that offer this test currently. Um, and what we saw is that at least one of those websites offers uh, women the chance to talk to a clinician after having the test. So that is certainly something that we didn't see universally across the websites. And I suppose that's um, if, if someone... Could, yeah, oh yeah, I still don't want to be fair, unfair to the doctor, but I mean, you know, you, you do want an opinion there, but equally you don't want somebody that's unnecessarily bringing you into an IVF clinic. That's correct. So I think um, certainly in order to make those informed choices about testing, people really need reliable information about the, what the test can and can't do um, and a conversation with a trusted health professional before you jump into testing I think is a really uh, useful thing that women can do to be cautious. So if there's a problem with Australian websites 
uh, to some extent in terms of their information. Shouldn't the regulator, shouldn't the TGA get involved? I think there's certainly a role for uh, tighter regulation here. It's really important that women have access to, you know, balanced, complete information. And certainly, you know, we're lucky in Australia, we have a Charter of Healthcare Rights that um, establishes that people have a right to clear information about tests so they can make informed uh, choices. Um, in terms of um, how, how that sort of plays out, I suppose we don't know the answer to that yet. And there's certainly, I think this is the start of a conversation about what that direct-to-consumer testing looks like in Australia. So have a chat with your GP and do it um, wrapped up in some, um, you know, with a doctor talking to you about it and hopefully the doctor understands what the limitations of the tests are too. That's it. I think looking for um, really balanced information from independent parties is a really good place to start here uh, while we continue to have those broader conversations about whether this is something that we want to make available in Australia. Rachel, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Norman. Dr. Rachel Thompson is in the School of Health Sciences at the University of Sydney. Now, one of the side effects of having had babies and ageing in general is what used to be called prolapse, uterine descent, where the ligaments and muscles holding up the uterus or womb weaken and the uterus descends into the woman's vagina. It can cause discomfort, urinary leakage, feelings of heaviness and problems with sexual intercourse. Apart from childbirth, the risk factors for uterine descent might be genetic, obesity, previous pelvic surgery, or even a lung condition with chronic coughing putting pressure on the abdomen. Sometimes no treatment is necessary, but there's been a debate among surgeons about which operation is best, and of course, a huge controversy about the use of mesh. But there are operations which don't involve mesh and don't remove the uterus. And a randomised trial in the Netherlands has found that an older operation called the Manchester Procedure gave better outcomes over two years than a newer operation. It's an important consumer story for many women. And who better to talk about it than Professor Helen O'Connell, who was Australia's first female urologist and is president of the Urological Society of Australia and New Zealand and the first woman in that role too. Helen is best known for being a world authority on the clitoris, but in fact for many years she's been highly focused on getting better results for women with prolapse and urinary incontinence. Welcome back to The Health Report, Helen. Thank you very much, Norman. It's a pleasure to be here. So there's two procedures that they're talking about in this trial, the Manchester procedure and sacrospinous hysteropexy. Just describe what they are, how they're done. Yeah, actually, when you start putting it into layman's terms, the first one, Manchester repair, doesn't sound that great because we use the word amputation of the cervix. But um, if you can bear with that term, uh, you've got a very long cervix that's prolapsing down with the uterus and that essentially is cut short so it doesn't then go so far down into the uterus. And then so in a sense, you're reducing the longitudinal length of the uterus. Exactly. Nice way to put it. And then with this uh, procedure as well, they nuanced it. So I'm, I'm not actually sure that it's apples um, versus oranges in terms of um, uh, Manchester repair now versus the past because they did actually add uterosacral plication to it um, so that's the first operation. So that's they were looking pulling at. in the ligaments, tightening the ligaments. Pull, tightening the ligaments, exactly. And the second uh, operation was using a very strong ligament that's out to the side of the cervix called the sacrospinous ligament, which goes from the, the side of the pelvis back to the sacrum. 
and putting in this particular study two sutures, which were typically permanent sutures, into that ligament to then fix the cervix in place. And long story, so, and so, a long story short, mm. the Manchester procedure worked out better over two years. The women got better results. 80% of the women said they were very much better. But the reoperation rate was definitely higher in the hysteropexy group or the ligament fixation versus the, the cervix getting um, amputated. Um, and there were some other improvements on the Manchester repair side. Against that, though, was a slightly higher death rate, most of which did not appear to be related to the surgery. And so it looked like, in general, they were very comparable in terms of their success rates, but probably there was a significant edge with this older procedure repackaged and improved. It's a very interesting study. So let's go back to the beginning. So a woman has got uh, uterine descent, and it can be very distressing for some women, and it is a cause of um, urinary incontinence, which is you know, a major interest of yours. What's the story? Just give me the just give me the walkthrough in terms of how women should approach this problem, the conversation they should have with their doctor, and the options available. Because not every woman needs surgery. Yeah, absolutely right. And and these were the patients in this study were in the moderate to severe range, certainly not the very severe range. And they were older. There were very few elderly people in this study. Um, So look, if a woman has the sense of a bulge in the vagina, that heaviness, particularly after being on her feet, the sensation of a lump coming down or even coming through the the vagina, it's pretty clear they need to see a trusted health professional that would typically be the doctor. The doctor would then have a look and if it was actually relatively mild, it would be a common thing for the patient to then be referred to a physiotherapist. And this is an area where physios have become very good at conservative management, teaching exercises and that sort of thing and much more recently competent at um, inserting a pessary, so typically some form of ring or object that will elevate the part that's coming down to see if that alleviates symptoms or, in fact, to give very good symptom control um, to see if that's going to suffice as the um, way forward. Of course, that may not appeal to you or you may say from the get-go, oh, well, that, you know, I really want to get it fixed. This is the right time in my life to do so, in which case you would see an expert in this type of work and that would typically be a urogynecologist, gynecologist or some urologist, um, people who consider themselves to be experts in female pelvic medicine. And then you would have a very thorough examination Because what happens when you've got prolapse, this study was looking at prolapse of the uterus, but it's very often um, accompanied by prolapse of the bladder, the urethra, as you mentioned, incontinence, um, and often as well symptoms in the posterior compartment or affecting the bowel. So you really want that um, very thorough systematic evaluation of each of those compartments to work out what's the best composite plan, and then of the treatments available, 
which one suits you at which part of your life cycle and what are the other problems. For example, if you had um, an intractable menstrual disorder, there may be a place for hysterectomy or if there was any question about pap smear, that may also be something worth considering. So it, it's certainly not a situation where you go in and there's an automatic response, oh, well, you're going to have a hysterectomy or, you know, so, and, and consumers are much better these days at, you know, framing their questions so they can have a full and frank discussion. Thank you very much for joining us, Helen. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Professor Helen O'Connell, who's a Professor of Urological Surgery at Monash University and President of the Urological Society of Australia. And that's the health report for this week. We'll catch you next time. We certainly will. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.